The one in the boat with them is the one who has always been, the one who has had no beginning and will have no end, the one who made all things from nothing and holds all things in his hand, the one who speaks to wind and the wind obeys. It seems to me that every biblical truth and every spiritual reality will have a superlative in Scripture, meaning that maybe there's a biblical character or maybe there's a story or maybe there's an episode that particularly teaches some truth, some reality, some spiritual principle more profoundly, more clearly. And so when we think about these superlative types of characters or stories, there's so many of them. We could think of perhaps Solomon as being the superlative example of one who started well but ended badly. We could think of stories such as the story of Saul as one who was given every advantage but yet lacked one thing, and that was the filling of the Spirit. And without the filling of the Spirit, he was not God's man to lead God's people. We could think of stories such as, well, not stories, but passages such as Ephesians chapter 1 as being the Bible's premier place that teaches us of the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ and so many other things that we could see in the Scripture. But when we talk about superlatives, those stories, those episodes, those parables, those passages that will teach a biblical truth or a spiritual reality more clearly than all the others, there is no passage of Scripture like the one that we turn to this morning. It is no exaggeration to say that the superlatives found in this story cannot be overemphasized or exaggerated. There are so many ways in which the story to which we turn is the Bible's premier story for so many spiritual truths. Let me Just to name a few, I'll name a few to begin with and we'll see more as we go through here. But this story that we turn to is the Bible's grandest premier episode of demon exorcism. This is the Bible's premier story of the radical transformation of a human being from a lost condition to a regenerate condition. This is the Bible's premier episode to show us the lengths that God will go to to save one of his sheep. This is the Bible's premier episode to show us the deepness, the, the depth of human misery and human suffering and human affliction and many others that we could point to. We'll see these as we go along. But this is the story that will show us many of these truths and more, more clearly and more profoundly than any other story in our Bibles. This is the story of the demoniac known as the Gerasene demoniac from Mark chapter 5. Now this story that comes to us in Mark chapter 5 is found in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But Mark is particularly drawn to this story, as I feel all of us will be. If you are not drawn to this story, if this story does not grab you by your heartstrings, then you are a cold-hearted person. Because this story is, I feel, the most compelling, the, the story that shows the greatest pathos, the greatest human anguish, the greatest human connection of any of the stories in our scriptures. And Mark resonates with this story like I feel that we will this morning because Mark is the one that, although all three of the Synoptic Gospels tell us this story, Mark's recounting of this story is by far the most detailed, the most compassionate, the most connected. Mark is relating the eyewitness events of Peter as Peter is relating them to Mark. 
So for example, Matthew will tell the story in six verses. Mark takes 20. So he's going to tell the story with, with a great amount of feeling, with a great amount of details, with a great amount of connection. We'll take two Sundays to look at this story, and this won't be an artificial division at all because we'll see that the story will, will divide itself really into two halves for us. Today we'll look at verses 1 through 13, which will be the story of the demoniac himself and Jesus' casting out of the demons known as Legion. And the reaction uh, by the town, by uh, the townspeople, or I'm sorry, not the townspeople, but the, the pigs throwing the, the demons into the pigs and the pigs swan dive into the, into the Sea of Galilee. We'll cover that this morning. And then next week, we'll return to the story to look at the townspeople's reaction to Jesus. And they're asking Jesus to leave. And then the final, final interchange with the now regenerate, converted, prior, uh, previous demoniac. We'll look at that next week in verses 14 through 20. But we'll begin today by reading the entire story, all 20 verses, beginning from verse 1 of Matthew chapter 5. Let's read together. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and the country. And people came to see what it, what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. And He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for Him. And everyone marveled. So as we begin to look at this story this morning, the first thing that we should do is just remind ourselves of the context because the story didn't just drop out of the sky. The story follows a flow of events, a chain of events, And this chain of events God has put together 
sovereignly with great intention and with great purpose. And so to remind ourselves of what just happened the night prior to this. The night previous to this was the end of that long day in which Jesus taught all day long, sitting in the boat in that place probably known of as the Bay of Parables, that little bay in the on the western slope of the Sea of Galilee with the steep inclines all around with the land leading right up to the water. And people were sitting on the bank and, and looking down at Jesus in the boat and listening to His teaching. And He taught all day long, teaching in many, many parables, such as the parable of the soils, the parable of the seeds, the parable of the lamp, and so on. And after that long, exhausting day, Jesus then took those, those who were His called out ones, those, those whom He desired for Himself, and called unto himself the ecclesia, the church. He called them, and they got into this boat and a few other boats, and they started out across the sea because Jesus said, let us go to the other side, beginning there at the end of the day. And Jesus, knowing full well what was ahead of them on the sea, it was his intention to take his people, his called out ones, into the storm that we read about last week. And so as this little flotilla of boats, which is this picture of all of God's people with their shepherd Jesus leading them across the waters. The sea in the scriptures, as we said last week, is, is this metaphor for the, the rule of evil and the chaos of evil in this world. And so Jesus is leading his called out people across the sea that represents the sea of chaos and evil in this world. And he leads them right into this storm because the theme of Jesus revealing Himself to His people continues. As chapter 4 showed us again and again, it is those who are on the inside, Jesus says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom. To those on the outside, I speak in parables. And Jesus then teaches them in the parable of the measure. He says, "To, to what you use, it will be added unto you, and to everyone who has, more will be given. And so more is being given because the storm on the sea is all about revealing Jesus to them, to His called out people. And so on the storm, on the waters, is where Jesus reveals Himself most profoundly to His called out people because He reveals Himself as they wake Him out of that deep, deep slumber. They wake Him and in His grogginess, He wakes up and rebukes the wind and the waves and they immediately, they recognize the voice of their Maker and their Master and they immediately obey thereby revealing to the disciples something of Jesus that they never could have seen on the shore. They never could have seen in the safety of the land. And that is this. They had known Jesus as the powerful teacher, the one who taught things that more powerful than they'd ever heard before, the great miracle worker, the great healer, the one who has cast out demons and cleansed lepers. They knew Him as all of that, but they yet did not yet know Him as the one who made the wind and the waves and the very boat that they're in, and indeed made them. They did not yet know Him as Yahweh, as the great I Am, as the one deserving of their worship. And so they would only see this in the context of that storm on the sea. So the revealing of Jesus continues, and He reveals Himself to them in the storm. After the storm, the calm that that results from that, the great calm that Mark says, the disciples sat in the boat, looking at Jesus in great fear because they had now for the very first time realized who is in the boat with them. And the one in the boat with them is the one who has always been, the one who has had no beginning and will have no end, the one who made all things from nothing and holds all things in His hand, the one who speaks to wind 
and the wind obeys. And so as they sit there staring at Jesus in this boat, they are now for the very first time beginning to see him as maker and creator. They already believed in him and trusted in him as something more than the great crowds were, something more than just miracle worker and teacher. They knew he was more than that, but they did not until the storm. They did not yet know him as their maker. And now they begin to see that and to realize that. Now, the text doesn't tell us this, but I would be willing to bet that nobody except for Jesus slept a wink that night on that boat that all of those men on that boat stayed awake all night long except for Jesus because they probably spent the night wrestling with what they just saw, wrestling with the reality that they just saw a man awaken out of a deep sleep and speak to the waves and the waves stopped. And as they're wrestling with this, the next morning comes and now they come to the far shore the shore that now puts them outside the land of Israel, outside the land of the Jews, into the land of the, of the Gentiles. And that's where we pick up our story in chapter 5 and verse 1. From chapter 5 and verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea. Now, looking back up at verse 35 of chapter 4, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Chapter 5 and verse 1 has them arriving at the other side. That was Jesus' intention. That was his destination. The other side Verse 1, they arrive at the other side of the sea in the country, to the country of the Gerasenes. So just a quick word about Gerasenes and how that might be just a tad bit problematic for us. You may have a a footnote in your Bibles saying that there are indeed some textual variants on Gerasenes. If you are a particularly astute biblical student, then you might know that uh, Matthew refers to this as the country of the Gadarenes, And Luke refers to this as the country of the Gergesenes. And then Mark refers to it, of course, as the country of the Gerasenes. So which is it and why can't we get it straight? Well, of course, there is a bit of a textual variant in there. But also, in addition to that, there's a little bit of unknown as to exactly where that the cities were located. There were three cities by those three names that I mentioned earlier. And at different times and different places, this area is referred to in each of those ways. But as far back as the third century after Jesus, the church recognized that most likely the city near this that was being referred to here was a city that was known in Aramaic as Kersha, in the Aramaic Kersha, in the Greek Gersha. And so that is most almost certainly the place where this is located. Gersha was a city, or Kersha, depending on the language. Kersha or Gersha was a city that was located within a mile of the, sea, of the, the coast of the Sea of Galilee. In addition to that, It was in the same area. And in addition to that, it's an area that also has lots of sharp ravines and cliffs that go right up to the edge of the sea, making a very good place for the later episode of the pigs diving off into the water. In addition to that, there's lots of caves around the area. And the cemeteries, the tombs of this day, were almost always comprised of caves. And so all those things come together to make that the perfect area for this to have taken place. Gersha, or in the country or the region of the Gerasenes, the larger area there was known as the region of the Gerasenes. So this region here of the Gerasenes, we could talk more about that, but we'll just keep going because our time is precious this morning. This country of the Gerasenes is where they arrived to. Now, this country of the Gerasenes, as we said, is a Gentile area, but it's not just a Gentile area. It's a Gentile area that is particularly steeped in animosity towards the Jewish people. This is because 
that just prior to this, about maybe 90 years before this episode, in the year 63 AD, this land was liberated by the Roman army uh, 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 from the rule of the Jews under what's known as the Maccabean regime. The Maccabeans, they were the, the Jews, the period of time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And so 63 BC was when they were liberated from the Jews to then be put under the, Rome, the rule of the Romans. Now the Romans were much kinder to the Gentiles in this area than were the Jews. The Jews were rather harsh to them. And so there is no lack of bad blood between the Jewish people and the people living in this area. This area known as the region or the country of the Gerasenes. Later, it's going to be called the Decapolis. The Decapolis was a region here. The whole region is about 100 miles, 100 square miles. And it's a region, as the name alludes to, it's a region of 10 Gentile cities. Decapolis, uh, Deca, 10, like a decade, 10 years. And polis, meaning city, like metropolis. So Decapolis, these 10 cities, all Gentile cities. We're going to read about those a little bit later. But all these areas are, are prominently Gentile areas. There are Jews living in this area, but not very many and not very faithful ones. And so this is the, where, the area where we are now. So they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. So unclean spirit, your translation might have evil spirit because that's what an unclean spirit is, is an evil spirit. So this man with this unclean spirit meets them, meets him as just as he gets out of the boat. Now there's no mention made in the text of the other boats that were with Jesus, but the assumption is that they were there as well. They weren't lost at sea during the storm, so the assumption is that they're there as well. But Jesus gets out of the boat and he's met by this man with an unclean spirit or possessed of an unclean spirit or possessed of demons. Now, this would be a great time for us to pause and do a little bit of, give a little bit of thought to a theology, so to speak, of demon possession and to look at what the scriptures have to say about demon possession and how demon possession relates to, but yet is different from things such as mental illness or uh, epileptic, epileptic seizures, such uh, things such as that, things that our modern age will, will classify in certain ways, but yet appear to be very similar to things that we see in Scripture. We could spend some time talking about that. We could also talk about why it is that demon possession seems to be so prevalent in the gospel accounts, yet is virtually absent in all of the Old Testament and is completely abs- absent in the epistles. We could talk about all that, but... That would be ground that we've recently covered because we laid the foundation for that back in the first episode of Demonic Possession in chapter 1. And so I don't want to spend time laying foundation that we've already laid. I would just encourage you that if you did not hear that message, uh, the name of that message is Be Silent and Come Out of Him from January 8th of this year from Mark chapter 1. I would encourage you to, to go back and you can watch that or listen to it or read it or get the notes or whatever you want. But in that message, we spend quite a bit of time thinking thinking well about what the Scriptures teach us about demon possession and how demon possession in the Gospels is not the same thing as what we often think of as perhaps mental illness or other conditions today. But we related all that to the lifetime of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. I would encourage you to go back and review that if you're interested. But now we won't relay, we won't relay that foundation, but instead we will uh, keep going. From verse 2, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met Him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. So the revelation of Jesus continues. And Jesus will now reveal Himself to His disciples in an even more profound way than they just witnessed on the boat. 
So those that Jesus has called unto himself, these are the ones that are receiving the greatest revelation of who Jesus is. And what they're about to receive is a great, great shock. Because where they've just stepped out on, this is, we talked a little bit earlier about superlatives in the scriptures. And some of the ways that this story is the superlative example of so many things. But another way in which this is the Bible's superlative story of a certain truth is this. This is the Bible's greatest story of uncleanness. There is no story in all of scripture that is as unclean as this story here. Now, what do we mean by unclean? We mean that scriptural premise, that scriptural truth that God begins teaching in the Old Testament about ritual cleanliness or ritual cleanness or ceremonial cleanness. It was all a method of God, God teaching his people about the reality of sin and the nature of sin. And so as we're probably all familiar, much of the Old Testament has to do with the concept of ritual uncleanness and being ritually defiled in such ways that prevented one from attending temple worship or tabernacle worship or giving sacrifices or different things. All those teachings, they consume a large portion of our New Testament. So our new, our, I'm sorry, our Old Testament. Now our Old Testament teaches us of the, not only the reality of ritual uncleanliness, but the severity, the seriousness of ritual uncleanness for the Jew. For the Jew, this was the worst thing of all to be declared ritually unclean. And there was a whole host of things that declared one unclean. However, of all the things that declared or made a person ritually unclean, thereby necessitating this process of ritually cleansing themselves so that they could worship, the thing that made them the most unclean for the longest period of time was death. Touching a corpse or being in connection with the corpse. Above all things, that was what rendered a person unclean. And so here we are met by this man that's coming to Jesus who not only has been touching corpses, he lives among them. That's his home. He lives among the most unclean thing that there is to the Jew. And not only does he live among the corpses, we are told that he is possessed of an unclean spirit, making him doubly unclean, not only possessed of unclean, and not just an unclean spirit, but as we'll see in the passage, many unclean spirits. So here they are in, first of all, an unclean land. All of the land outside of Israel was known as unclean land, but this land in particular was known as the uncleanest of the unclean. And they step out onto this unclean land met by a man filled with unclean demons who lives among corpses. Furthermore, we're going to see that the story is going to tell us about the most unclean animal of all, which is the pig, the swine. And not just one of the most unclean animals, but we're told a herd of some 2,000. 2,000 pigs is a big group of pigs, even by today's standards. Not only that, but we're also told that all the townspeople come out and these townspeople are pig herders. They work with unclean animals. This is by far the most unclean story of all of the scriptures. Here we are in an unclean land met by a man possessed by many unclean spirits who lives and sleeps among corpses. Uh, and in the vicinity is a herd of 2,000 unclean animals. The people that live in this area are all the people that care for these unclean animals. It's doubly, triply, quadruply unclean. 
Now, if you had been in the boat with Jesus last night, and this man awoke from this deep sleep and spoke to the wind and spoke to the waves and they obeyed, you would begin, just as the disciples, I believe, began last night, you would begin a process in your soul and in your mind of coming to believe this man Jesus to be the great I Am, the Holy of Holies. And coming to this understanding, having it dawn upon you who this man really is, that He is the Holy of Holies, what would you most expect from this man? You would expect him to be more ritually clean than anyone you knew. And within hours of beginning to show them that he is the Holy of Holies, he takes them into the greatest episode of uncleanness in all their lives. He is revealing something to them of the character of the Messiah and of the Father who sent the Messiah as He goes to the most unclean place He could possibly go. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met Him, out of the tombs. So Mark is careful there to make us see that not only is He living among the tombs, He comes to Jesus from the tombs. He is a dead man living among the dead. He is spiritually dead. He's metaphorically dead. For all intents and purposes, He's physically dead. Yes, He's breathing and still moving, but His life is death. That's what His life is comprised of. And out of the tombs, this man with an unclean spirit comes to Jesus. Verse 3, He lived among the tombs. Now that word translated lived, oftentimes we talk about how one Greek word will need four or sometimes five English words to translate it. You know how that's sometimes that's, that's commonplace as we study the Scriptures? This is the reverse. That word lived is actually translating three, three Greek words, if I can speak, three Greek words that basically say this, that he had a dwelling, but also the prefix kata is added, which means down. So what Mark is literally saying is that he had a dwelling down in the tomb. You see the emphasis there. Mark is, is describing his abode, this tomb, which would have been some sort of a cave. He's describing it like an abyss. Now we're going to see abyss a little bit later in the passage as the demons are going to be fearful that Jesus is going to throw them into the abyss. Well, this man came from the abyss. He is the one being tormented in the abyss, and he comes out from down among the tombs. He comes out to Jesus because he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. 